Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Okay, I've got 7 o'clock. We're going to have to go get started because I think Paul is going to shut me down early uh, due to the weather. So we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, anyway, welcome. Uh, those of you who braved uh, coming out tonight, especially if you're visiting with us, we want you to know you're a welcome guest. Please give us the opportunity to get to know you. So again, we're going to continue our thoughts on our class, fortifying our faith. And hopefully this is not going to be too loud for you. And again, the purpose of the class is to reassure us of our faith, uh, the foundation that we have built our lives on, and to make sure that we think about it from the point of view of us having a rational faith. Our rational belief is the term that I'm trying to use, and I'm continuing to emphasize for you in this class. I want you to hang on to that. It's, it's a belief that is based on evidence, and what we want to do is we want to follow the evidence and, t- and let it take us where we should go. And then because of that, we can have confidence. There's no reason for us to be shaken. Uh, somebody challenges us, that's fine. We can remain calm and, and we can execute 1 Peter 3.15 and we can be ready to give a defense for the beliefs that we have. So tonight I wanted to conclude our discussion on has the Bible been corrupted, but we're probably not going to get completely finished with that, but we will go as far as we can and then we will finish that up next week. Uh, but remember that what we're doing here is we're in the middle of proving that we have a preserved, accurate text which we know to be the Word of God. That's what we're in the middle of doing here is proving that. And so the first point that we went through was that the Greek manuscripts can be authenticated. The Greek text has been authenticated. And we went through a lot of detail there, probably way more than you wanted. Uh, But hopefully you've got a better understanding of how that transmission process worked, right? And now we're in the middle of talking about the translation process. Um, But remember, last week at the very end, we started talking about grammatical structure, lexical things, and, and those types of things. We'll pick back up in a minute, but Brother Rumpf asked a very good question. He asked about punctuation. Unfortunately, he's not here tonight. Maybe he's watching online. So I do want to take the time to address his question and his point because he made a very good point. And so his question was this. Isn't punctuation an important part of the translation process? And if punctuation is not handled correctly, it can alter the meaning of the text and mislead the reader. And in fact, he's very correct in that. Um, So obviously the answer to that is yes, punctuation is very important in the translation process. And so what I want to do here is I want to go through some examples of that. And let's look at how indeed the the punctuation uh, can impact the translation process. So in ancient times... Hebrew Greek manuscripts, um, they were written with very little, if any at all, punctuation marks. 
In fact, one example is the beginning of a sentence. It was, it was not easy to identify that. It wasn't identified by a big capital letter or indentation or anything like that or any type of identifier such as that. Um, and according to Bruce Metzger, who was a well-known um, scholar, uh, a Greek scholar, he and Bill Mounts and some other uh, people have actually been on uh, translation committees. Punctuation didn't come into play really until about the 8th or the 9th century AD, and that's when Greek scribes began to be more systematic, if you will, about their use of punctuation. Uh, so this is just one example of the beginning of a sentence. Uh, another example is the use of quotation marks. And so there are no quotation marks in the manuscripts. So the decision as to where to insert these is really up to the translator. Uh, so there are opinions and, and judgment on, on how to use punctuation, and of course those, those opinions can differ. Uh, and in fact, the beginning of a direct quotation can be fairly easily determined because of the words that are used. It can be indicated by a verb, maybe like said or asked or replied, you know, in conversation. However, the more difficult part of this is to determine when to actually close the quotation. So it's easier to identify where the quotation might begin. It's more difficult to actually figure out when the uh, punctuation or the quotation, if you will, should stop. Maybe it's a part of a series of comments that's part of a conversation. And so I want to give you an example of that. And that example would be from John chapter 3, verse 10 and following. So this is from the New International Version. And hopefully you can see that, that I've got part of this in red. And if you can't see the quotation marks. So it says here, you are Israel's teacher. This is the uh, conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, end quote. Okay, so this is where the NIV stops. And then they go on and really pick back up in the normal narrative. You see that's in black. For God so loved the world that he gave his own and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, in verse 17 and continuing. So that's the NIV. Look at what the ESV does. Everything is in red, so I'm not going to repeat the text for you. But what happens is if you look at the ESV and several other translations, the dialogue ends at verse 21. So what's correct? Well, again, as we've said throughout the class, that is there a doctrinal issue here? Is there a salvation issue here? There's not, is there? Jesus said it one way or the other. And so, uh, that's a great point, James. Jesus said it one way or the other, didn't he? Excuse me, my allergies are bothering me. So, this is an example of the quotation issue in translation. 
All right, so another issue is comma positioning. How many of you got an F on a term paper in college with a comma splice? I was a mathematician, so I wasn't very good maybe sometimes at placing my commas where they needed to be. But comma positioning is very important because it can actually change the entire meaning of a verse. So we're going to show you that here. Um, so an example of that is Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, let's take a look at this. So the New King James Version says, written on the inside and on the back, comma, sealed with seven seals. So there's some background here. Uh, basically, this is describing a scroll being held in the right hand of God. And so according to New King James, it was, it was uh, written on the inside and on the back. And then it was sealed with seven seals. The ESV says the same thing, but says it just a little bit differently. Written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. But notice the New Revised Standard Version has a footnote and look at what just simply moving the comma does. Written on the inside, comma, and sealed on the back with seven seals. Do you see the difference? Okay. Now this is not that really that, that big of a deal. Okay. But this is an example of how that works. All right. Now this one is a little bit more interesting. The comma positioning here is actually used to broaden the scope of what is being said. Okay, so let's take a look at that. So this is in the middle of the model prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. It says, In the King James, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth, as it is in heaven. Alright? What about the ESV and almost every other major modern translation? Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth, as it is in heaven. You see how this broadens the scope and the point of the verse? So you can see that the comma positioning, in this case, uh, didn't alter the meaning, but it expanded the meaning um, as to what is actually being said. All right? So moving further on, punctuation can also be made, and I think I mentioned this before, to make a theological point. Warning, warning, warning. Okay, so red lights should be going up in your, in your eyesight right now. The position of the comma in Luke 23 verse 43 is a great example of this. Okay? So according to the most reliable translations, the criminal who was crucified with Jesus on the cross asked Jesus to remember him when he entered his kingdom. And so to this request, Jesus replied, ESV, New American Standard, New King James, and a host of others, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so what is this next translation? Well, to support the doctrine of what is known as soul sleep, okay, which is the notion that after death you are not conscious anymore. Okay? So there's no survivability of the conscience after death. To support that doctrine, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their translation, the New World Translation, have moved the comma and look at what it Look at what it does. Surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So the comma has again altered the complete meaning of the verse, and it's been done to support their theology. So this is why I think James asked last week, you know, how, when you study, what do you do, Mark? This is why it's good to use all these different versions. Not to, 
I don't recommend using that version. But to get the sense of the passage, it's always good to go take a look, right? Just going back to the passage where we saw that the conversation ended with quotation. Uh, again, that wasn't that big of a deal, but it's but it's good to note those types of things. So the, cor- the correct translation, obviously, here is the ESV uh, New American Standard New King James one. All right, moving along. Okay, so now the next thing is a statement or a question. So at times, a sentence in the Greek can actually be understood either as a statement or as a question. And in, in an example of this one is in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. So in most of the major translations, it reads as it does here in the ESV. Which reads, who is it, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. But notice what the Revised Standard Version does. Starts off the same, says, who is to condemn? But then it actually interpreted this as a question. Is it Christ Jesus? who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. So here's an example where the interpretation or the translation was a statement in one version and a question in another. What about Mark chapter 15, verse 2? The ESV reads, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Well, Westcott and Hort, and remember we talked about those guys, they have a marginal note that stated that that last phrase could also be taken as a question. Do you say so? Where he was actually asking Pilate a question. So this is just another interesting uh, impact of the way that, uh, or rather an interesting way that punctuation can actually impact translation. This is, this is where I'm going to say I don't know because I don't know Greek. So I would have to actually go examine that in a lot of detail. In this particular research that I found, there really wasn't any additional detail there. James, do you have an, an idea about that? That's right. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, James. I'll see if I can find something. But if you find something, share it with me and I'll learn. So... Uh, this, this is where I can claim ignorance for sure. So, All right, so another type of punctuation is an exclamation mark. Uh, so let's, let's think about that. Um, so some modern translators will occasionally insert these, right, in an attempt to bring out uh, a more forceful emphasis of the original manuscript. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 in the Revised Standard Version, It says, after this I looked, and lo, in heaven, an open door. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, which one seated, with one seated on the throne. And so you see the placement of the exclamation points. Now, it happens to be that uh, exclamation point is used in the first part of this passage and a lot of other translations, but it's not in the, in the second part of that. Um, 
And in fact, in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms, the RSV translators got a bit overzealous and they used exclamation points all over the place. So much so that the new Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, later on went back in and replaced them with periods. So it's just a piece of information there for you. But again, uh, exclamation points don't really have an impact on us as far as our belief system, do they? Um, but it's just interesting to know that um, how the how the translation process can work and how punctuation can actually impact that. All right. And so the last one that I wanted to bring up to you was capitalization. And so uh, you will find this if you look closely that there is inconsistent use across translations in especially how they capitalize what we would call divine pronouns. One's referring to God or Christ or, or something like that. All right, so for example, let's look here at Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. The ESV says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then you have the New American Standard Version, which says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with uncoachable fire. But notice the difference. In each scenario, uh, the word was capitalized in the NASB. All right? So again, not really that big of a deal. But why is this the case? Well, the original manuscripts didn't do this. In fact, Hebrew letters were all the same height. And the original Greek manuscripts would have been in caps, all caps, and many of them would have been in a running style. So therefore, there's really no historical precedence for this practice. But I guess this is my opinion and, and the opinion of some, that in our day and time, it's associated with being a sign of respect. And so in a modern time, this is why this would have perhaps been injected. Now, be very careful, especially with the word spirit. Okay, so I'm just giving you a heads up. Uh, I did not take the time to find an example for you, but I believe that if you look in some of the modern translations, uh, sometimes you'll see it incorrectly capitalized. So just a heads up on that, but that's another example of where capitalization uh, might be an issue. So, Yes, sir. That's right. That's correct. It does not. That's right. Many of them do that in the name of what they they, they uh, would call consistency, right? So, right, right. For, for those of you that didn't hear James, he, he was pointing out the fact that the ESV in particular does not capitalize any of the pronouns, and and he's he's correct. So, all right. Any comments or questions about that before we move and before Paul gives me the, the chop? He didn't give me the chop yet. He's sitting back there. He must be. He must have his weather, weather app route. Okay. All right. Let's switch over, gentlemen, to the other slide deck, and I'll have to actually find out where we're at. Bear with me for a second. Okay. where we were. Yeah, we got to here. So remember, we talked about things like 
the idiomatic approach to translation that we talked about. Uh, dynamic equivalence, which is the same thing as idiomatic, and informal equivalence, which is more literal, and we talked about all those things, right? And we had gotten into the section where we started talking about the structure of the language form. Remember, the whole thing about translation is we're trying to take it from what is called the parent language or the original language, and we're trying to move to the uh, receptor language, right? So if you're trying to go from a Greek manuscript, you're trying to eventually go to English, and that would be the receptor. Okay. All right. So grammatical features. We talked a little bit about this last week, parts of speech, you know, the, the usual things we learned about in the seventh grade grammar class. You know, I remember diagramming the sentences and not doing very well at that. Uh, voice, passive, active, etc., direct and indirect address, word order, sentence length. We talked about all that, so we'll go ahead and move through this. We talked about the sequence of the parts of speech for the different languages. English, you know, obviously we know well. And then we pointed out how things can shift in other languages. The Hebrew, the Spanish, the Greek varies quite a bit. And again, I'm not a, a Greek scholar. I just saw another gentleman who probably could have answered James' question back there, and I'm pointing my finger at him, which is a bad thing. My mother told me not to do that, but an expert back there. Uh, so he's shaking his head no, but... Uh, but it's good to see Caleb Colley here, so he's, he's definitely a, uh, an expert in this stuff. So this is where we stopped off last week, talking about linguistic forms. And so that's, that's what I want to get into next. All right? So in, in English, we talked about how, you know, you have adjective, noun, verb, and Hebrew, verb, noun, adjective, and so forth and so on, how it can vary with the Greek. All right, so if we move forward, let's talk about lexical features. All right, so... In this case, we're talking about what are we doing here in translation? Are we matching word for word? If so, are we going to use the same word in every context? And how do idioms and figures of speech impact that? Right, An idiom being something that is a, is a type of speech that is peculiar and is personal. Uh, to maybe a, a group of people or a geographical location. Uh, you know, in, here in North Alabama or Big Cove, we might say things a certain way, right? And the folks at Big Cove, they understand it. But outside of Big Cove, they might not get it, right? Uh, so it's a specialized vocabulary. Uh, it's an expression that might not be quite obvious. And so you can imagine how hard that is to translate, right? Um, you know, I can remember talking to someone who was translating for me as I was teaching, you know, where they spoke Spanish, and he was pointing out, you know, you have, uh, you have mouse and mice, you have house, and what do you have? Right? So he was talking about how difficult English was, and I said, yeah, that's a good point. I've never thought of it. Uh, for example, you know, the example the slide uses here is Swahili, right? It has no word for airplane, so they use the bird, uh, the the word bird, and so you have to determine from the context what they're actually talking about, right? And so this is the type of thing that you would run into um, in translation. Uh, you would also have a word maybe in the parent language that can have multiple meanings that has to be translated by different words in the receptor language. And so the word bread might mean a loaf of bread, or it might mean food, or those of you who are not very 
old will remember this, might mean money, right? Hey, you get some bread. Uh, this is an old thing that, you know, for us older people, we, we, we know about that. But you young folks probably don't know about that. So this is just an example. All right. So, again, this is, uh, this is part of the, the types of things that someone who's in, engaged in translation has to uh, think about. All right, what about idioms and figures of speech? Well, they can be very, very confusing, can't they? So when you're trying to produce a translation, if you, if you have something like this, then how are you going to word that in, in uh, the receptor language? Like, here are just some examples. Uh, in the English, you know, I've, I've used some of these. Uh, under the gun, you know, I say that a lot at work. Uh, raining cats and dogs. Don't cotton to it. Some of you who are uh, smarter and wiser than I am probably remember that one. Uh, I've never used that one. Don't cotton to it. Chew the fat. My mother used to say that all the time. Well, let's play it by ear. I've told my kids that before when I was trying to ignore them and they were asking me to do something. I was like, no, let's play it by ear and see what happens here. Uh, so these types of things, you can imagine how difficult they would be uh, to try to translate. So it's unbelievable how many there are in English. But there are also these types of things in Greek and Hebrew. So this puts the translator in a position of trying to understand those in order to accurately represent them in the receptor language. You know, not just English, but, you know, we have to also translate into other languages as well. So uh, there's this, this notion of a Hebraism. So many times in Hebrew... Uh, there, there might actually be some linguistic feature that was typical of that language. Uh, and, and this is an example of the types of things that we're talking about. Uh, Semitism. It's a Semitic word or idiom. So you have the same type of thing. And of course, this would have been meaningful, right? Um, in the time frame that the original text was written. And then you have different types of dialects from Semites. You have Semitic-speaking people like Arabs, Arameans, Babylonians, Carthaginians, Ethiopians, Hebrews, and Phoenicians. So these are all issues for the translator. So the point is that all of these aspects of human language can and have been assessed in order to translate from one language to the other. That's the point that we're trying to make here. Uh, and so any kind of translation... Uh, this type of, of, of thing will have to be dealt with. All right, so how do we know the Bible's been preserved accurately in transmission? We said, number one, the Greek text has been authenticated, and we went, you know, laboriously through all that and showed you some example of, of you know, how Dave parsed Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, and again, all of this is, is from Dave's series on Has the Bible Been Corrupted? It's outstanding. It's going to be about seven hours worth of your time, though, if you choose to watch it. So I was trying to, uh, trying to squeeze it all into these sessions here. And then the second part was the translation process works, right? We can get from the Greek into the English, and we know that the process is valid, and we know that it works, okay? So that's, that's our contention. That's what we're going to state, and that's, um, that's what we're going to uh, hopefully use as proof when we are challenged on that. All right, so let's try to see if we can... I'm still looking at Paul back there. and cut me off, so I'm going to keep on going. All right, so let's continue. So the next question, uh, or the next sub-point, is the translation differences can be deciphered. So in the translations, there are going to be differences, 
But we want to, just as we did in the variance, talk about the fact that they can be decided upon. So has the Bible been corrupted in transmission? We're going to say no. Can we really know that what we have in the New Testament is what God intended us to have? The answer is yes. And so the translation differences are decipherable. And so let's let's look into uh, what we mean by that. And let's take a look in particular at how we got our English Bible. And we're going to try to going to try to move fast through this and we don't get, get it. Yes, sir. Right. Yep. Very, very good. Very good point. Thank you. That, uh, so good. I'm not even going to try to repeat it. So hopefully everyone heard that. All right. So we're going to get into this. And so we're going to take a look now at how we got the English Bible. And so we're going to go through a history here. And so what we want to point out is, is that even in the differences that we see in the English translations, we can uh, determine what those differences are. Okay, so we're going to end up a little bit early tonight, so we'll pick up, um, we'll go ahead and finish out, the, I guess that's a five-minute warning. We'll go ahead and get started with this, but we'll finish this out next week and move on to another topic. All right, so the historical line of the English revisions. Okay, so Old Testament Hebrew uh, would have finished up about 500 B.C. The Greek uh, uh, New Testament would have finished up about 8100. And, you know, if you want to talk about the canon, you know, not the thing that you shoot, but the canon of the Scripture, that's a whole nother conversation. It's a, it's a, a you know, it, we can have an entire class on that, um, or at least one lesson period on that. But that's, a, that's time for another day. So as God's Word was completed, there would have been a need for translation. Okay, so we see that uh, the Latin translation, uh, about AD 404, and then along comes John Wycliffe in about 1382. And, and uh, Wycliffe was the first person to provide an English translation of the Bible. Okay, since we're all English-speaking, uh, this is where our interest is going to be for the rest of this, this uh, discussion. And so he believed that the average person could learn the Bible. Uh, and so it, it just turns out, though, that this was not something that was particularly accepted by everyone and uh, didn't make certain people very happy about. Uh, the Council of Constance, Constance in 1415 uh, ordered Wycliffe's body to be taken out of the grave, burned, and his ashes thrown into a river. So this is what they thought about John Wycliffe. Uh, but we owe a lot to Wycliffe because of the work that he did to get the Word of God into the language that we speak. Aren't we thankful for these men who basically would risk their lives for the work that they did? All right, so that was John Wycliffe, 1382. Then along comes the Tyndale in 1525. William Tyndale, he is the first person to provide a printed English translation of the New Testament. And so uh, some cleric said, you know, people would really be better off without God's laws than the Pope's laws. Again, we're dealing a lot with Catholicism here. Tyndale said that if God spared his life, he would make the plowboy know more scripture than the cleric. And in other words, he was going to do his best to try to get the word to the masses. And it was interesting 
to read about how copies were smuggled into England in bales of cloth, and many of these copies included anti-Catholic notes. So he would include notes about uh, about that in the uh, in the text. All right, and just to finish this part up, so the Catholic Church obviously opposed his work, and he was eventually arrested, and he was killed in 1536. And one note of particular interest is that about 92% of his New Testament was reflected in the King James Version, which would come several years afterward, uh, and, and we'll talk about that eventually. Okay, thank you for your time, and we'll start there next week. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School. West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.